0: Well, first Corinthians sixteen. <laughs> we finally got here. I wasn't sure we would. Probably one of the more simple chapters in the whole book of First Corinthians. And I'll be very honest and tell you on the front end, I doubt very seriously that we'll journey into Second Corinthians anytime soon. If it's anything like First Corinthians, what an incredibly difficult book of the Bible for me personally to sift through and teach and appropriate for myself. Well, in this final chapter, Paul brings his long and difficult letter to an end. You can only imagine how shocked the Corinthians are to hear this. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, Paul alludes to the fact that he learned... That this letter has brought sorrow to them and in some ways he regretted it, but in other ways he didn't because it brought about conviction and some change, although it was very, very slow. But in this final chapter, Paul will deal with three primary things. The first one is the collection... For the believers in Jerusalem who are suffering, that's what we'll look at today. His travel plans and his intent to visit them soon, and that's what we'll look at next week. And then he offers his final exhortation, commendations, and greetings at the end of the chapter, which is where we will finish in two weeks from today. So chapter 15 ended with a very celebratory tone as we looked at verses 50 through 58 at this celebration regarding the, the transformation that takes place in the resurrection, the defeat of death, the fact that we will put upon ourselves an imperishable body an immortal body through the resurrection that God makes available to us. And so as you move from that celebratory conclusion of chapter 15 into chapter 16, for some it feels like it's quite abrupt and it doesn't really flow very well. But in fact, if we look again at verse 58, there is a bit of a segue or a platform that is very necessary as Paul gets into this delicate issue with the Corinthian church and I would say a delicate issue with many many Christians today and that is the issue of giving the the challenge monetarily and materialistically in our own lives But here's what it says in verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain or meaningless in the Lord. So, there is a bit of a segue from the glory of the the resurrection into this challenge of this collection that Paul is going to deal with here in these first few verses. So most certainly Paul sees the work of the Lord in a much more global sense than he does in just an isolated local sense. So it makes perfect sense for the Corinthians to view the work of the Lord not just in what is taking place in Corinth, but what is actually taking place in other parts of the world through the ministry of the apostles and others who are taking the work of the Lord through the Gospel message into the world in which they live. Now Paul was an evangelist. He was a missionary. He was a church planner. He was a disciple maker. And he was a global ambassador for the gospel. Now, you and I may never be global ambassadors for the gospel, but you and I can give and contribute in such a way that we are enabling those who are global ambassadors to do the work that God has called them to do. So that's how we probably need to think of this best as we go through this. So while Paul's specific mission was to spread the good news to everyone everywhere, he didn't do so with little to no thought of believers in other places that he was no longer in or had not yet been. And so his missionary journeys, through his missionary journeys, he sought to connect these distant groups to one another. And that is the idea of this global work in the Lord. So these first four verses are this commitment in action, to being steadfast, immovable, always ready to support the work of the Lord. Here's what it says in verses one through four for us today. Now concerning the collection for the saints as I directed the Church of Galatia, so do you also on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as as he may prosper, so that no collections may be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. So this is interesting to me. I've been here almost six years, and I've never, to my recollection, given a message that was, focused on giving in any way, shape, or form. There may have been allusions to it, but there's never really been a focus on it. And this is one of the reasons why it's important as a pastor, as a teacher, to teach through the books of the Bible sequentially, beginning at chapter 1 and verse 1 and going all the way through. Because in doing so, you get to the difficult passages. You are going to jump on your soapbox And beat certain issues or ideas into the people. You're not going to have the propensity to harp on a singular topic like giving. And I've been in some churches where that seemed to be the only focus. And most people resent or reject that constant focus of a soapbox issue. And I would probably say that giving or money is pretty high up on the list of what turns people off to the church because they will always find the ability to say, well, that's all they ever talk about down there at church. Give, give, give. Money, money, money. That seems to be all they're really concerned about. So when you come to passages in a book of the Bible that deal with giving or evangelism or immorality or witnessing or any other topic, you deal with it And you go on. So this is what we're doing today. And we're dealing with these final things that we find here in chapter 16 in this book of 1 Corinthians. So, as I mentioned, this thing is going to deal with ministering to the needs of the poor that are in Jerusalem. Extreme poverty was very, very common in the ancient world as it is in most of the world today. In fact, if you were to live at poverty level here in America, by our standards, you would be in a pretty difficult life. If you take that same standard of living, of of poverty, into the third world, you would be among the wealthier in those areas, so you'd be among—excuse me—you being among the wealthiest in those areas, and that's the disparity that we find here in America with other parts of the world, and that's how desensitized we really are to how good we have it here in America. But extreme poverty was very, very common. It would be—it could be especially difficult in Jerusalem, despite it having a very strategic religious importance. It was the center of religious activity for Jews. It was often overpopulated. And during the many national feasts and other religious celebrations, there would be incredible swells of populous growth and it would be an incredible strain on their resources, finding food and clothing and shelter for the masses and it only made the poverty greater for those that were living in that area. Adding to that reality that many Jews who converted to Christianity were excommunicated from their religious community They would lose their families, they would lose their businesses, they would not easily find work to replace the loss of income. The hardship that they would face would likely be exponentially greater than it would be to be a Jewish person in that area, than it would be to be a Jewish Christian. So hardship for Jewish Christians in Jerusalem was especially difficult, and it was fairly rampant. The persecution that was begun by Paul, that we read about in Acts chapter 6, did not stop When Paul was miraculously saved in Acts chapter 9, that persecution continued because the zealous Jews wanted to stamp out Christianity and they didn't ever really let up. So what ended up being the reality for many, many Christians who were Jewish converts was an incredibly difficult life and great great poverty, and Paul and the other apostles were very, very mindful of that. So when Paul was called by the Lord to minister to the Gentiles, and when the other apostles in Jerusalem gave him their blessing and stamp of approval and were about to send him on his way, this is what we would read in Galatians 2, chapter 9 and 10, where Paul gave a recollection of that experience. And he says, And recognizing the grace that had been given to me James and Cephas or Peter and John, who were the who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, identifying the people groups that they would primarily minister to. Verse 10, They only asked us, to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. So if you remember, in, in the book of Acts, where there was a burgeoning, Christian population. There was an ever growing number of poor people being brought into the fellowship and there was a need to help them with food and other things. And so they called the, the, some of the disciples and others to be deacons to serve those who were in need. And as Paul was brought into that reality and about to be sent out of it, James and Peter and John say, Hey, Paul, Hey, Barnabas, don't forget about us because we're still, we're still dealing with these issues. So as you you go, don't remember the poor that we are ministering to. Paul said, I am very eager to do that. So Paul was, after all, a Jewish Christian who perfectly understood the hardship of others in Jerusalem, and so we have this emphasis here now on the collection. Verse 1, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, So do you also. Paul is saying, I am instructing you just as I have instructed the churches in Galatia in regards to this collection. Now that phrase you see there, now concerning or about, it's an indication that this is something that Paul is responding to in the letter that they had written to him. Now remember, Paul wrote them a letter. We don't have a record of that letter. They responded to that letter. Paul responded to that letter they sent to him, and that's what is our 1 Corinthians. So this phrase, now concerning, or now about, is the fifth occurrence in this letter, 1 Corinthians. And each time it appears, it indicates a subject change, and it also indicates that this is something they have asked him about. So, the collection that you have asked me about is what Paul is now addressing. So, based upon other New Testament writings, this collection to help relieve the extreme poverty amongst the believers in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was a fairly lengthy project. Paul mentions here that he has instructed the churches in Galatia to do the same thing, to collect for the poor in Jerusalem. This was likely on his third missionary journey. And Paul eventually reports... In Romans, the completion of this project that at the writing of 1 Corinthians was not yet completed. Here's what Paul says in the book of Romans. But now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints from Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Paul continually was mentioning this collection. He also reported on the generosity that was, that was Given in the taking up of this collection for the churches, for the, for the believers in Jerusalem by the churches that he has referenced in Galatia and also in Achaia. We read this in the second letter. To the Corinthians in chapter eight, now brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Now, in a very brief study of Second Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, after they received this instruction, there were some problems that prevented the Corinthians from being earnest about the collection that Paul has instructed. Paul is reminding the Corinthians in the second letter that the churches in Macedonia, in a great ordeal of affliction and with an abundance of joy have contributed to this collection. Verse 3 continues, For I testify that according to their ability, and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. Now, Paul says that in Second Corinthians, after he has already taught them about the collection, and first Corinthians, and I'll deal with that a little bit later through the message. So notice in second Corinthians, Paul reports that the churches in Macedonia begged for and urged Paul to allow them to participate in this offering for the relief of poverty for the believers in Jerusalem. Think about that. Paul is looking at this destitute group of people who are themselves experiencing great hardship and they're saying, Paul, we want to give. Paul, we got to give. Paul, we really want to help. And Paul's saying, no, you don't need to do that. No, that's probably not the best idea. No, you've got enough to deal with. And they're saying, no, we want to give. We want to give. The idea here is that this group of people who are themselves very, very impoverished and dealing with a great deal of hardship say, we want to be a blessing to our brethren. And oh, by the way, they have never met the brethren. They don't know their names of the brethren. All they know is they're the brethren and they want to be... A blessing. Think about how radicalized our giving might be if our primary concern and focus was, I want to give because I want to be a blessing. Think about that. You'll notice Paul's challenge to them in the taking up this of this collection, where he says this collection needs to be a priority. We see this in verse 2. Paul says, just as he has instructed the churches in Galatia, on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save, as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. Now, it's important to make a distinction between what Paul is teaching here, And what you and I would generally understand as our tithe and or offering to our own place of worship. Paul's not talking about our regular contribution to the place where we worship. Paul is talking about a collection over and above and beyond that which is given to support the work of the church that one happens to attend and support and is a part of. So there is that distinction there, and it needs to be known that there. There is a distinction here. Paul is talking about a secondary offering on top of what Christians would ordinarily give to their primary place of worship. Paul says this is a priority. So when? On the first day of the week. Now, it's different then than it is for us, so we would probably think about this. Now, on payday, when you cash that check... When it goes through the automated deposit and shows up on your bank account at that time as a priority, set aside some money for this collection that's going to be taken. So this is quite different from giving after you paid all the bills and after you've had the weekend fun and you look at what's left and what you got and you say, well, huh, there's not a lot here. I can't give as much as I think I would have liked to have given. I can only give out of what is left. What kind of giving is that? Well, that's leftover giving. That's not priority giving. And so Paul's teaching them the priority of this collection and furthering the work of the gospel by meeting the needs of the brethren, the work of the gospel, people you're never, ever going to meet. So on the first day, put aside and save... So you can support your spiritual brothers and sisters abroad through the work of the gospel. Now notice what is tucked in there in verse 2. On the first day of every week or every payday, each one of you is to put inside and save. So when Paul says each one of you, who is excluded from participating in the collection. Well, that means everybody, right? Nobody is excluded. The collection isn't reserved for the wealthy. The collection is a teaching or a commandment for everyone. Now, some will dismiss the importance of this secondary collection because their gift really doesn't amount to very much. Say, for example, that there is a... a. um, a church in need that we are affiliated with, and they need to raise, let's say, just $100,000. You go, $100,000, that's a lot of money. I can't give $100,000. I can't even give $1,000. All i got to give is a measly $10. That's not going to make a difference. Why bother giving the $10? Many people think that way. You know, it's not about the amount of the gift. It's about the heart that accompanies the amount that is given. This is exactly what Jesus taught in the parable of the widow's mite. We read this in Mark chapter 12 verses 41 to 44. And he Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury and many rich people were putting in large sums. Now we know based upon how Jesus taught this and how it was recorded in other gospels that it wasn't just a, a lot of money anonymously put in a box, you can imagine a wealthy individual flapping the money in the breeze or jingling the coins in the cloth and saying, here comes my offering, everybody take a look at this. cling a ling a ling a a ling That's the idea here. So a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. So Jesus has seen this. It's probably clear that the disciples are familiar with this practice. And calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributions to the treasury. That's all the contributions accumulated. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty... Put in all she owned, all she had to live on. Think about that. What do you think her children would have said had they known what she was going to give? What do you think her friends would have said... If they were to know that she was going to give all she had to live on, I remember growing when my kids were growing up, and we were in larger churches that had big, big vacation Bible school emphases, and a big thing they did was the the daily mission offerings, and there was always a competition between the boys and the girls who could give more. And I remember my my youngest who said, "I want to give all of my piggy bank." This missionary thing, and I was like, No, you don't need to do that. That's all the money you have. And he goes, No, but I really want to do that. And I, it's like, No, you just don't really understand. And I was, <laughs> Don't you get it? This is the heart of somebody that wants to be a blessing, and they don't have a lot to give, but what they have to give is, is important to them. And so he gave all he had, and he was a blessing. And I was embarrassed, and that's the way it goes for those of us who think we know better than the little children who come to him with hearts of faith, just desiring to please him and to love him. So she gave all she had. Now, in this collection that Paul is teaching The Corinthians to give. There's no suggested amount. There's no percentage mentioned here. Do you see what's given? Do you see the instruction? The principle of giving is in proportion to how you have prospered. Those who have little can't give a lot in the scope of a big dollar amount, but they can still give. And what they give is incredibly important. And those who have prospered can and should give much. They have the ability to give thousands of dollars, whereas another may only be able to give a few dollars. I remember the story, and I mentioned it here before, and it's a little rusty. It just came to me, but back in the early nineteen hundreds, I don't remember which of the Rockefellers it was, but it was one of the Rockefeller Rockefellers, and they were incredibly wealthy. Just. A stupid wealthy, and he would walk around town and and he would carry a pocket full of dimes and he would give a dime to every kid and the kids would just be, oh, they'd be over the moon, I can go and get a stick of candy and I can go and, and buy something, I can go to go play and do something. And so the, the reality is that Rockefeller was a generous man in giving out these dimes to the children, but Rockefeller could have given hundreds of dollars away to all of those kids and he never would have missed it because he only gave out of the surplus never sacrificially, never from a heart of love that truly wanted to be a blessing to those in need. Now, I haven't evaluated all that Rockefeller gave, and I'm sure he gave to worthwhile causes, but I wonder how much of that was, was given because his name was going to be on it. No, no. Didn't go and research that, but that's kind of the idea. Those who have a little can't give a lot, but they can give, and those who have a lot should give, In proportion to how they have prospered. So give as you have prospered. And this is not a teaching to give so that you can prosper. Be very, very clear on that. Paul is not saying, hey, you need to give to this collection so that God is going to prosper you. What Paul is saying, as you have prospered, give to this collection. The difference is astounding. Those who teach that we should give to God so that we can get from God are really teaching that giving is selfish in nature. You give so you can get more. Well, that's not giving. That's giving like pulling a slot machine waiting for the jackpot to come. That's what the health and wealth prosperity message is all about. And it's not biblical. It's not what God says about giving. So we give because we want to be a blessing. We give because we have prospered and we want to invest in the gospel. But we don't give so that we can give more. Giving is to be a selfless expression of love for God and his people and a desire to invest in and support the work of of the gospel. That is why the poor people in Macedonia gave beyond their ability because they gave themselves to the Lord and wanted to honor and serve and please Him. So we'll talk about that at the very end. Paul is teaching them to set aside money now so that when he comes to collect a collection, there will not be any need for further collections. Compulsory or required giving often lacks love and is often much less than planned and intentional giving would be. So think about it like this. If you give, if you plan to give on the day your check hits the bank, you're intentional what it is you want to give. If you give after you've met all your obligations and had all your fun, Or, oh my gosh, I forgot, I'm supposed to give to this thing today. Your giving is not going to be out of love. It's not going to be with the full intent of your heart. It's going to be compulsory with the leftovers of what you have available. So as we see in verse 3, this offering is a priority for the believers in Jerusalem. Verse 3, When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And verse 4, And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. So Jerusalem is Paul's homeland. So there is a natural interest in supporting believers there, but there's much more to it than just supporting his homeland. Paul is planning an additional visit to Corinth as we read in the next section. So when Paul saying that when I arrive, after the collection has been completed, then I will prepare letters of introduction of those you designate to take this offering to Jerusalem when this gift is given. This was a customary practice in ancient days. This is so-and-so and so-and-so, and they're from such-and-such a place. And here's what it is they have brought to you from us, and we pray about it. So that's what would take place in ancient practices, if somebody was sent as a delegate, there would be letters to introduce who they were, where they came from, and what it was they were doing there. So if Paul is able to to participate in the delivering of this gift, he would not write letters. He would would instead go himself if it is fitting for him to be able to do so. So there's two parts to this. One is, if Paul is able to go to Corinth and participate in delivering the gift... To the church in Jerusalem, then he will participate. If he can't go because of other issues, like the ministry stuff going on in Ephesus, and if his plans are changed and he can't get to Corinth, then something else has to happen. This is what Paul is preparing them for. Secondarily, some think that this word, with well, this word. Um, excuse me, this word fitting can also be translated worthy and something that Paul is saying if your gift is worthy of my presence and I myself will take it to Jerusalem to present to the church. I personally don't think that's what it is because I don't think Paul is caught up in the show of delivering something only if he deems it to be worthy. I think as we read through this chapter to its end will recognize that there's a lot going on and Paul is a little reluctant to say I will definitely deliver this gift and then not be able to do so. So he has pressing ministry issues. He isn't sure that he'll be able... To make this journey, he also isn't sure how well he'll be received in Jerusalem because he's now a traitor. So there's a lot going on into this. So the reason Paul is so interested in this collection for believers in Jerusalem is not just because it's his homeland, not just because he has a heart for the impoverished Christian in his homeland, but because Jerusalem is the spiritual heritage of all Christians think about that. Christianity has its roots in and its heritage comes from Jerusalem. Jesus would say this in John 42 and dealing with the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. God's covenant with mankind originates in the covenant that God made with Abraham, the father of Of the Israelites, the nation of Israel. Jesus, of that same Jewish ancestry, fulfilled that covenant through his death, burial, and resurrection. And so our spiritual heritage is rooted in Jerusalem. And talking about the generous gift of the Gentile churches in Macedonia... Paul says this in Romans 15, 26 and 27. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so. And they are, listen, they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things the ancestry of the covenant made with mankind through the Jewish nation... They are indebted to minister to them also in material things. So what Paul is saying is, because you have derived your spiritual ancestry from the Jewish people in Jerusalem, and they have shared their spiritual heritage with you, is it too big of a thing to ask for you you to share your material things with these people that you have inherited your spiritual ancestry from? So the sharing in spiritual things is a reminder that our faith in Christ is rooted in the covenant that God made with the Jewish people. In supporting the work of the Lord, our first priority is to our own church, then to believers in other places, and then there are other causes beyond that. And as we are able, Paul would say in Galatians 6.10, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. So there's this reminder of the good Samaritan, the one who helped a person who was not of a shared ancestry, a shared race, a shared religion, who was in a moment of need, and we need to share with those people, share with all people, but we are to prioritize those who are of the household uh, faith. Another important factor in this collection that Paul has in mind is to bring greater unity between Jewish and Gentile Christians. Now, we talk a lot about this when we went through Ephesians. We talked a lot about this when we were in the Gospel of John. But in Jesus' day, in Paul's day, Jewish people and Gentile people hated each other. They wanted nothing to do with each other. They avoided one another. In fact, Jews would ceremonially cleanse themselves when they went out into the Gentile marketplace because they believed they'd been defiled. That's how poorly they thought of Gentiles. And so when you had Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians getting together, not all of those barriers had been brought down and there was not a sense of unity. So I believe, and other commentators believe, that a part of what Paul had in mind in this collection for the impoverished in Jerusalem was bringing the Jewish and the Gentile Christians into a greater experience of unity. In his letter to Ephesus, Paul reminded the Gentiles of how they were once separated from the covenant of God with Israel and now had been brought together with the Jewish Christians through this covenant that God made with Abraham. So we read in, in Ephesians 2.11-14, Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentile in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, both of which are derogatory terms used by the others, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in this world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. So, answer this question. The Jewish Christians in Jerusalem who were still wrestling with animosity towards Gentile Christians, how much would this generous offering go towards helping undo some of the ethnic and racial bias that they still had in their hearts. Think about it like this. If you were at war with a neighbor and your house was partially burnt and they came over first thing and said, what can I do to help? How would that change your perception of that person that had been your enemy? You go, "Well, he's not as bad a guy as I thought he was. Here he is in my house wanting to help. This is what Paul has in mind as a part of the importance of this collection not only because it's homeland, not only because it's the brethren, but it's because there's ancestry there, and it helps to build bridges between two groups that don't get along very well. Well, to me, not unsurprisingly, the Corinthians didn't really take Paul's advice or his instruction very well here, and we learn from Second Corinthians that they did not participate in this collection. Now we saw how eager the Macedonians and the Achaian churches or Achaean churches were to support this collection. And so from 2 Corinthians, the same passage that celebrates their generosity and hardship and impoverished times... Paul says this to the church in Corinth, So we urge Titus that as he had previously made a beginning in this collection, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well in continuing this collection. That is what is not understood, but it's implied in the context here. They chose not to participate because of the of the continued... In st- internal strife they were experiencing and Titus who was instrumental in beginning the collection for relief in Jerusalem was going back to them to help them work through these problems and we would read in Second Corinthians 9, four. otherwise when Paul comes to receive this collection and it's brought back to the church in Jerusalem if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared we not to speak of you will be put to shame by this confidence. So think about this. The Macedonian churches in great poverty and hardship sacrificially have given for this collection to the relief of the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. They're coming to the wealthy, affluent city of Corinth and there is no collection or the collection is a fraction of what these poor churches and poor people have given How would that sit with the other believers who had given so sacrificially to this collection that Paul was going to be a part of? Not a very good thing. Not a very good look. Certainly not a church that is loving the brethren or supporting the work of the gospel. It is impossible to say I support the work of the Lord and not back it up by giving. It's impossible to say that. You may not be able to give a lot, but it's impossible to say, I love my God, I love my church, I love other believers, I love the work of the gospel, and look in your checkbook and say, I just can't afford to give. Our giving is to be in proportion to our ability, and even more so in proportion to our commitment to honor, to bless, and to please Him. The impoverished Macedonian and Achaean churches gave so generously because they had first given themselves to the Lord. And here's what Paul says in Second Corinthians as a part of this long going, longer passage about the collection that they had given. And this, the offering they gave, not as we had expected, because they're poor people going through a really tough time, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. That is how we are to approach giving. Whether it be to our first priority here in the church, to our other priority to helping other believers, to another priority of helping those who are out there supporting the work, of the gospel. Meeting people. Impacting people that you and I will never know this side of heaven. We can never say we love the Lord. If we don't give to the work of the Lord. Think about it like this. Somebody. Somewhere. Invested in the person that shared the good news of Jesus Christ with you. Whether it be through the physical building. Whether it be through the support of a missionary. Somehow, some way, Somebody gave. In such a way that it supported the ministry that enabled you to hear the gospel and respond. Let's pray. Father, we. uh...